Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest on today's show is Mena Van Prague, talking about her fantasy novel Night of Demons and Saints. We'll also hear from Graham Bartlett talking about his debut crime novel Bad for Good. And Kate Rhodes and Barry Forshaw will be chatting about crime fiction. Mena will give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, crime fiction happens to be the subject of the two interviews on today's show. Is that a genre that you read? I like light crime, i got to admit. I don't, I'm a more sort of Agatha Christie Poirot. I find, especially now, the world, you know, there's so much misery out there. I don't want extra misery in my brain. <laughs> I try to not focus <laughs> as much as possible. That's probably why I love fantasy, because <laughs> it totally takes me away from reality. Crime, I think, is the one genre that I absolutely couldn't write. Does it dovetail with fantasy at all? I mean, uh, plot-driven? Crime certainly is. Crime certainly is, which I think is why I couldn't do it, to be honest, because I'm much more about character than plot. I have to really, really think about my plots. And I am really happy with books where nothing happens much, and it's just all about character. Uh, The publishing industry is less interested in those types of books, as I've discovered. (laughs) Not being able to get those kinds of books published at all. And with fantasy, yeah, you really need a strong plot. And I just love those scenes that are all about character and description. Plus solving crimes. I mean, I just don't... I couldn't think how you get from there to there to there to there. And then you've got to have red herrings and then you've got to have twists and you can't, you know, know what's coming and... Very challenging, I think. But you are working with a crime writer. I am. I'm working with Emily Winslow. We met at Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education. Emily was running the crime writing diploma and she invited me in when COVID hit and everything went online. We started doing a lot more work than we had done before so we were doing a lot more lecturing and she invited me to join her on the diploma and then we turned it into a fantasy and crime diploma which is a as you said before an unusual marriage and some of the students were a bit circumspect at first and I got a lot of people who came in with prejudices against fantasy I think especially here, especially in England, I dare I say, especially in Cambridge, there's quite a lot of prejudice against fantasy because it seems that it wouldn't be literary. There's not so much literary fantasy out there and people are sort of a bit sniffy. Even my friends will say to me, you know, I don't really read fantasy. And I'll say to them, well, did you read The Chronicles of Narnia? Oh, yeah, I loved that. Did you read Alice in Wonderland? Oh, yeah, I loved that. But it seems to be something that you think you read as a child and not something that you read as an adult. And that, to me, is very interesting. So I started off just writing magical realism because that's more acceptable, although, again, much more acceptable in America than it is in England. But I wanted to go a little bit more fantastical, yet I still remained very fantasy light. It doesn't have any orcs or dwarfs or anything (laughs) like that in it. Uh, Do you think it's that people sort of take a a stance against fantasy and they won't 
dip into it and go back into it again. Whereas you might say, well, I don't really read crime, but somebody would say, I'll try this Ruth Rendell. This is a bit different. And they might step over that line. Whereas with fantasy, they've taken a very firm stance because they believe it to be one particular kind of thing. Yes, I think so. And honestly, I hold my hands up. I was like that as a teenager. I was very literary. Everything had to be realistic, kind of kitchen sink dramas in a way and I had um, a boyfriend who loved Terry Pratchett and I was so sniffy I'm like a world on the back of an elephant I mean it's ridiculous and I would just sort of dismiss it all it was actually only recently so I said well I don't touch science fiction you know science fiction is too far and yet I really enjoyed Good Omens because my publisher also published Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman you know, published Good Omens and then they did a series of it and I really enjoyed it. Again, it was, you know, sort of light, not heavy. But I think possibly it's about having a bit of fun, not taking things too seriously. I was a very serious teenager and now I've learned to loosen up a bit. And we'll hear your first choice of music then. Is music important to you? Does that help you loosen up? Yeah, I love music. I can't listen to it while I write unless it's classical unless it doesn't have words in it because I get confused and I'll start typing out the words <laughs> that are on the songs and that doesn't work. But actually, as I said, I was a very serious teenager and all I listened to was Vivaldi and Mozart and Tchaikovsky and that sort of thing. Then I met my husband when I was 19, scarily young, and he introduced me to more you know, music with words in, basically. And this one is Let's Stay Together by Al Green. Why this one? This was playing on the soundtrack to Pulp Fiction in my rooms at Oxford when I proposed to my husband two months after we met. <laughs> Crazy times. Ah, oh, fond um, memories then. Yeah. So I remember that song. We were sitting in my room and it was just, it was totally spontaneous. I hadn't thought about it, but I love that. Well, some of those, the songs on the soundtrack are very romantic and it was a bit, you know, being a crazy teenager. That was Let's Stay Together by Al Green, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Mena Van Prague. Mena's first novel, Men, Money and Chocolate, came out in 2009 and became a bestseller around the world, translated into 24 languages. Since then, there have been seven more novels, including The House at the End of Hope Street and The Witches of Cambridge. Her latest, Night of Demons and Saints, is a sequel to 2020's critically acclaimed The Sisters Grimm and came out in February. You all say it is a sequel, Amena, but what's it about? It was inspired by fairy tales. I thought at some point, I remember just my, when my daughter was born, she never, ever slept ever and I was just so tired and I took on this nocturnal habit and so I'd be awake at very strange times and I was thinking a lot about fairy tales I think having a daughter was a different experience for me because I had a son before and there was there's a different sort of connection you know you're a woman she's a woman you know she's growing up and I was thinking a lot about fairy tales and how they represent women I started to write different versions of them and give them more powerful heroines. And I'd be writing most often between 3 and 4 a.m., which is why I remember when my editor at Transworlds said, he said, the book has a very hallucinogenic quality. And I said, yeah, that's because I was out of my mind on sleep, you know, sleep deprivation. 
so I thought at some point that the Brothers Grimm, you know, there was this whole thing about the Brothers Grimm appropriating stories. You know, they didn't write these stories themselves. They took them and a lot of them were taken from women and a lot of them were oral histories. And then I thought, well, what if these women, these characters were sisters? You know, that the, the fathers of the stories, they kind of created these sisters. So then you could have, say, Goldilocks and Cinderella and Snow White and so on related to each other, but they don't know that they are. And I love to set slightly magical stories within real worlds and everything, pretty much everything I write is set in Cambridge. And then I love to choose, you know, these locations like the Copper Kettle and Pembroke College and all of these things because I love Cambridge so much. So I put it into all of the books and then I can sit in cafes and research by just looking out of windows and <laughs> drinking hot chocolate and that kind of thing. I was definitely inspired by Narnia and Alice in Wonderland, and it's sort of a combination of the two, a bit of a homage to them. So the idea that when you're young, you're in touch with magic, you believe in, in fantasy, and so you go down the rabbit hole and you discover all of these incredible things, but when you turn 13, you you can't go there anymore and you forget who you are and what you know what you're capable of and it does sort of seem to mirror that children are so much more open to things than adults are and i think part of what we love with children is that they help us to let go again and to believe again and and experience and have more fun basically and then the narnia bit was i was absolutely obsessed with wardrobes as a child <laughs> and just believing that any wardrobe I mean my grandmother had this most incredible Victorian wardrobe and every time I would go in and I maybe this time maybe <laughs> maybe and it just seemed to me such a metaphor for hope really so I was thinking well what could my wardrobe be and I was walking around Cambridge and I you know these beautiful ornate gates are everywhere and then I remember when I was at Oxford even as a student there were so many gates you couldn't go through because they were the master's garden or something like that. And then I thought, well, what if at a certain time, it turned out to be sort of half past three in the morning because that was when I was always awake, the moon had to be in a certain quarter and you'd step out and go through these gates, but you wouldn't go onto the master's garden. You'd go into Everwhere, which was just this slightly fantastical realm that I created, but very much created it unpopulated by anything because I did not want to have that, other world that is another world full of beings it's much more of a metaphor it's much more a place where you can be all powerful you can discover yourself you can discover what you're capable of rather than discover some dwarves and orcs and stuff like that talking about discovering there's a lot here about potential about women tapping their potential that's a theme in all of my books i think I once heard, I don't know who said it, unfortunately, that writers write the same book many, many different times. You know, we have these pet themes that we really, really love. And for me, it is about self-belief and empowerment. That's something that I just have to go through my whole life, always learning and relearning and relearning. And it's why I love teaching. And I love to see a student come in who just doesn't believe that they're any good because that was me when I was in my 20s and it was really really hard I mean writing is such a solitary business and you don't have anyone you just get rejection all the time and you don't have anyone to say actually keep going you're gonna get there in the end and I had no one 
in my 20s and I just slogged away and would get all these hideous rejection letters and keep thinking, should I give up? This is insane. So I love to be that person who says to them, no, you've really got something here. Keep trying, keep expanding. And then when you see someone from day one to day 365 and what they're capable of doing once they have someone who's really giving them advice but mainly cheerleading them is incredible what they can produce it's a bit like parenting in a way there is a lot in the book actually about parenting and about writing there's a lot about motherhood the choice of whether to be a mother or not and at least two of the sisters that we focus on are writers or illustrators there are illustrations in the book as well so it seems to me about harnessing creative power however that expresses itself yes definitely that is an obsession of mine, obviously, with the teaching. There's an absolutely wonderful essay by Mary Oliver called Of Power and Time. And there's a line in it about giving yourself the time and attention to be creative. And it always moves me deeply. And it's sort of, you know, my motto for life. People so often don't give themselves the time and attention. There's so many people that come up to me and... Uh, book events oh I really want to write a novel and I say well have you written one no I don't have the time I don't you know we give ourselves all of these reasonable excuses but I really think that if you have that passionate drive you have to have obviously belief and faith that comes with it because otherwise you think well what's the point but you can do it you really can you know I was not sleeping at all and I was writing nonsense and then I would sort of edit it and <laughs> so on but my thing is that anyone can find 10 minutes a day. And I did this thing with my students for ages called the sentence game. And I would send them out sentences and then they would write for 10 minutes from that sentence. And so many of them would be shocked by what they could write. You know, you look at the sentence and you think, well, that's impossible. And then you just start and then it unleashes this creativity in you. So I I've been discovering short stories a lot and I really enjoy those. And I went to some workshops because I love attending those as well. And I went to a workshop with the writer Zoe Gilbert, who wrote Folk, some beautiful folk stories. And she would say, right, we've got 20 minutes to write our own you know, story about Selkies. And I think, I can't do that. <laughs> you know, That's always the first thought. And then I did it. I just think that we're capable of so much more than we think we are. Val McDermott, very famous crime writer, and she says that, you know, she gets sort of a third way into a book and thinks, I just can't, you know, this is rubbish. It's awful. I can't do this. So it's not about how successful you are. She sold 15 million copies or something. But this self-doubt plagues everyone. And it doesn't actually have any bearing on how good you are at something or not. My mission in life is to break through <laughs> the self-doubt. Oh, well, thank you, Mary. We'll come back to you in just a moment. We'll talk about that self-doubt and short stories, but you mentioned uh, crime writing there. Let's stay with that theme. Kate Rhodes was an award-winning poet before she turned to crime. Crime writing, that is. Devil's Table is the fifth novel in her critically acclaimed Silly Isles series, featuring the detective Ben Quito. Kate launched the novel last month at Heifer's Bookshop in Cambridge alongside fellow author Barry Forshaw. He was talking about his new book about the crime writer Georges Simenon called Simenon, The Man, The Books, The Films, A 21st Century Guide. With two such crime aficionados in the room, it seemed sensible when I arrived at Heifer's for me to take a step back and let the two of them have a little pre-launch chat. Barry, welcome. 
Thank you, Kate, and very generous of you to give some of your time to my book. The first question I have to ask is, why Simenon? He's been dead for a long time, he was very revered at the time, but why did you choose to write a book about him? I think I've seen so many crime writers around the world who pointed proudly to their complete set of Simenon on the shelf. Andrea Camilleri was one in Italy. He's still an amazing influence on so many writers. And very few people have read all 500-odd books. I can't say I have. <laughs> I've had a good attempt at it. Yeah. I've certainly read all the Maigrets. Mm. And Maigret keeps being redone by different actors. There's a Gerard Depardieu version coming now. That's the one I was going to ask you about because it's the one I'm familiar with. I mean, I mean, they've been quite a few incarnations mm. of Maigret, haven't well, they? Well, his son told me that uh, he had this trick whenever he met an actor who played Maigret, he'd say, you're my Maigret. <laughs> and then he'd say to the next actor who <laughs> got the gig. The so next. he said it to uh, Rupert Davis, the English actor, he said to Jean Gabin, who I think is probably the best, yeah. being French yeah. and is acting in the right language. So if you had to pick the best book that Simonon ever wrote, would it be one of his standalones? Or would it, or would it be a Maigret book? I'm going to cheat and use his answer for that one. <laughs> there is no one book. He saw him in the line of people like Balzac and Zola that is all his novels were one great big novel, one total. And you, people say to me about Simonon, oh, I've read one book and it was okay. I said, one book is not enough. Mm. You have to read at least five Maigret and five of the Romain Dieu, which are the tough, hard novels which don't yeah. have Maigret in. No. Was that cheating? No, I think that's a really good answer. And I think one of the things that I loved about your book was that it gives us short sort of outlines of so many of the books. So if you are thinking of diving in either to a Maigret or one of the Romain Dieu, you get a strong sense of what they're like. What was the thing that fascinated you most about Simonon when you were researching his life? One of the main things was his claim about the number of women he slept with, which was 10,000 women, <laughs> yeah. which his son actually repeated to me uh, with a completely straight face and asked me what I thought, and I said, well, it seems an awful lot. A man who, A, is incredibly prolific, uh, wrote on one year 24 novels in one year. How did he have time? Mm -hmm. And then I paused and said, also, it doesn't look good how many women you've slept with. You, you, you don't yeah, tell not... people this. He, he said that his father did it as a kind of publicity thing. He knew it would be talked about, right. and it was. Nevertheless, yeah. several people told me that Simonon appeared to have what Michael Douglas checked into a clinic to get rid of, sex addiction. He regarded sex as a way of establishing that he was alive. Mm. It was not just mm. the sex, whether you believe that or not, but that was what he said. Because he did get a wrong diagnosis quite early in his life, didn't he? He yes. thought he was going to die. Do you think that might have affected him? It might have him? been a fact, and I don't know if you've met anyone, Kate, as I certainly have, mm. who, when they are given a sense of death, start to live life to the full. Yeah. I've got two old yeah. friends who now, she's had cancer and she's in recovery, but they've now done everything that they wanted to do. She's probably off out there sleeping with 10,000 men, <laughs> for all we know. <laughs> so. And I think he is a, a remarkable writer. The, the prose is very straightforward and simple. Yeah. Like Agatha Christie, he has a limited vocabulary. In her case, I'm not sure it was intentional. In his case, he deliberately kept it limited. The stories would just have no interruption and you'd read them. There's something about that period of time, isn't there, that he was up against some greats writing at that time, wasn't he? I and mean, if you had to kind of put him alongside another writer, who would you compare him with? Well, it would be André Gide. So André Gide said he's the best French novelist of our time. At the time, everyone yeah. said, hang on, he's a detective story writer. <laughs> you, would, you would appreciate that, would you yeah, not? Somebody taking a seriously detective yes, story writer. And shouldn't we good. talk about your new book as well, The Devil's Table? Well, we can always swap over <laughs> and do a switch back. Because I, be I, I do yeah. love those books. 
books. And I like particularly about your writing this notion that you are a poet. And I think that comes through in the, in the text. <laughs> That's really kind of you to say that, Barry, because I know that you're a big poetry fan like I am. But actually, I think sometimes it scares readers a bit. Cause I you think, think it puts them off? I don't know, not everybody you gets... Mean some readers won't read you because they think, oh, that's going to be too poetic. Yeah, I think maybe if you put the word lyrical in a review of a book, some readers think, great, and other people think, oh, no. So that's a good point. It can work both ways, can't it? Cecil Day-Lewis, who wrote as Nicholas Blake, they were not poetic books, his detective no. novels. They were just very good detective novels. Yeah. And he saw them as two totally separate identities. Is that how you mm. see it? No, I'm afraid I, I'm guilty of trying to make my books as lyrical as I possibly can, just kind of sneaking some beautiful language in there when nobody's looking, really. Maybe writing about the sea, writing about small islands, sort of lends itself to poetry anyway, doesn't it? So in an era when we've not been able to travel because of COVID, your mm. books work as a as a kind of travel guide to the Silly Isles. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I mean, I've I've got to admit, it does feel like sort of vicarious travel when I write about Silly because I've been going there ever since I was a child. I love that landscape. I love its kind of... um, They're just lumps of rock in the Atlantic, you know, 45 miles off the coast of Cornwall, really remote. They've got their beauty. They are quite raw-looking in winter. Lots of grey granite everywhere you look a bit like the west coast of Ireland, but, yeah, it's a really fantastically inspiring landscape to write about. Yeah. And you place in the middle of that landscape a male protagonist. And I know you've met yes. Ruth Rendell and won a Rendell Award. Mm. So both Ruth Rendell and Peter James mm. said to me they were not interested in having a female detective because they felt that male detectives have more agency. I have to be absolutely cynical about this and say that I wrote six books about a female protagonist and they didn't sell as well. They were much less popular than this current series, mm-hmm. which has had one best-selling title. Well, you're in a good so, tradition because Val McDermott wrote several books about a female reporter, which she's actually gone back to doing. Yeah. And her publisher said you will sell more if you have a male and female duo. I think the whole male-female dynamic works really well. Something about just a single lone female doesn't seem to work so well for readers. Maybe we still live in a patriarchy, Barry. Well, yes. So <laughs> how much of you is in is in Ben Kitter? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. He's six foot five and I'm five foot two, so not a great deal, I wouldn't say, really. Does he have your sensibility? Yeah, I think he's a sensitive fellow. I think he cares about that landscape and I think he's quite sensitive, you know, vulnerable even, which some people might say I was as well, actually. Mm. (laughs) What follows Ben? Is there another protagonist in the offing? Well, I've just written a standalone for the first time Mm -hmm. in my life, so I'm going to wait and see if anybody bites, if anybody's (laughs) interested in reading it, you know. But it's, it's been a really different experience because so far I've written two fairly long series, so to jump off after seven books in this series Mm. and write a standalone felt really exciting actually really refreshing well, a bit like you, going on a short break and you know yes, somewhere very different but i think you've got so many dedicated fans of whom i meet a lot oh. who will be happy to take that journey with you kate <laughs> thank you very much barry and i've got to say actually your book on simonon i read it was a breathless delight i love simonon i love may gray and the books never grow boring to me no. i've read quite a lot of them a lot of times and it was a real pleasure to read such an interesting biographical study Well done you, that's all I can say. (laughs) Thanks. And Devil's Table by Kate Rhodes is published by Simon and Schuster. Simonon, The Man, The Books, The Films by Barry Forshaw is published by Old Castle Books. We're talking on Bookmark today to Mena van Prague about her novel Night of Demons and Saints. Mena, before we heard from Kate and Barry there, you were talking about short stories. And in Night of Demons and Saints, there are 
short stories that are told from one woman to another. Where did they come from? They're quite mythic, some of them. So I discovered the short story when I was writing the first book, The Sisters Grimm, and those were just retellings of fairy tales. So they're very, very simple. And then I got together with my mom. She is a psychologist and a therapist and a life coach. And we decided to write short stories together to give people inspiration. So that was very much the theme. So all of the short stories, well, most of them in that book were written with her. We'd take very strong themes from fairy tales, but also from myth, as you say, because they're so, they're so in our culture. You know, they're so deeply rooted within us. I think we all know them. Like we all know the Icarus tale, for example. There are sort of certain shortcuts that we can talk about. And that's why I think fairy tale is so powerful. It's part of our psyche in a way. Mum and I wanted to take those and make them modern, give people themes about relationships, about self-belief again, self-doubt, that kind of thing. We both think that being able to absorb them from a short story is so much easier than having a self-help book, for example. And fitting them into the narrative. Well, I knew I wanted to put short stories in there. So that was very purposeful. And fortunately, one of the sisters, Goldie, Goldilocks, was a writer in the first book. And Liana was an illustrator. And I was working, you know, I'm working with a wonderful illustrator called Alistair Michael. You know, we went through stories together and looked at how he would illustrate them. So her being the illustrator of the story is sort of a bit meta, you know, it really evoked what we were doing together. I wanted to make it organic. You know, I didn't want to just sort of shoehorn the stories in. So I actually had to lose some of the stories. And unfortunately for Alistair, he'd already illustrated some of them. So, you know, we're going to hopefully they'll be in the third book. But the stories had to reflect what the sisters were going through at the time. And then I just thought it would be a really interesting way for a reader to be able to read the novel as it was going along, but hopefully to read the short stories and then just pause and really let those sink in and then move on with the plot. Oh, it's nice that it came out of uh, working with your mum because there is a lot about the companionship of women in the novels as well and the collective power of women. Definitely. And as you say, there's a lot about motherhood. I mean, I'm very close with my own mother. Obviously, we couldn't write together, if not. And having a daughter, there's then those three generations of women and that made me look at it. And also getting older and thinking about youth and middle age and old age and and all of that. And I feel that writing with someone else sometimes adds an extra flavour and a spark. And mum and I have a shorthand together because she honestly gives me quite a lot of free therapy as well. (laughs) (laughs) Especially in the last couple of years, you know, it's been a challenging time. Well, let's hear your second choice of music now, which is Famous Blue Raincoat by Leonard Cohen. I love Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen was another one that my husband introduced me to. And this is one of his less, well, famous, less well-known ones, I think. What I love about Leonard Cohen is, to me, it's stories within music. He's a storyteller. He's a poet. And so it's not just some slightly inane love song that has one note and one thing that it's saying. You know, he's telling it a whole story. And then I can listen to it over and over again. And to me, songwriting in that form is the ultimate art form. Storytelling and music, everything coming together at once. I mean, it's just magic. It's four in the morning 
the end of December I'm writing you now just to see if you're better Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876 Our And we're talking on Bookmark today to Mena Van Prague about her novel Night of Demons and Saints. Mena, it's a fantasy novel, but there is darkness in this novel as well. Grief, obsession, depression. People tend to think fantasy might be all light and airy, but you've explored the dark side of life here as well. Definitely. And that probably comes from the original fairy tales as well, because fairy tales are so light when they're disnified but so dark when you go back to the originals, which is why I think they're strangely inappropriate for children. You know, when you're looking at them as adults, they give you a lot more. The darkness there is is very potent. But I think I'm naturally drawn to that. The darkness is the way in which the fantasy becomes realistic. You know, I love to look at the way that those two things are married the darkness of reality, the lightness of fantasy. But then if you're going to have fantastical characters, they have to have the light and the dark. They have to be driven by love, but also driven by fear, anger, revenge. Otherwise, we just wouldn't believe in them. They wouldn't be real. Have your novels got darker as you've written more? Definitely. With the Sisters Grimm, this trilogy is so much darker than my other books and I knew I was going to upset quite a lot of my readers and I did because they used to describe my earlier novels as sort of a warm hug. That would be the things that I would get from my readers talking about those books because they were just purposefully very uplifting. So there would be a bit of darkness in there but the whole focus was on hope and, and positivity and the challenges, quite frankly, of not sleeping for five years, <laughs> yeah, it darkened my worldview quite considerably. And so I still have that desire for hope and optimism. But, you know, yeah, when you're staring down the barrel of not sleeping five nights in a row, you're pretty much full of despair. So I think a lot of the first book had a hallucinogenic quality. It also <laughs> had a lot of darkness in it because that was my mind state. And what about the writing process generally? Because you're, what, eight novels in now? Are you finding that easier? I don't know, easier. I, I have to admit that lockdown, I didn't write anything. And that this is the first time that I've not written anything in a really long time. I've always been quite obsessive. I think writers need to be if you're going to get anything finished because everything in life is pulling at you to not write a novel. I mean, especially before you've been published, why would you? You know, you've got your kids to raise, you've got your work to do, you've got to clean dishes. I mean, there's so many practical things that need to be done and you have to. I mean, that's why I always say to my students, you know, you've got to be fierce about writing. If you want to write, you have to fiercely protect your writing time. And that was definitely me at the beginning. As I say, lockdown, I just all of that went out of the window because homeschooling, I mean, please, who, who is <laughs> managing to do anything? Oh, yes, we feel your pain. Yes, <laughs> that's, it's just two words, homeschooling. It's like PTSD, you know, it just makes me hyperventilate to even remember it. And I'm just starting to write again now. I mean, fortunately, I'd written Demons and Saints before 
lockdown because editing is a very different thing to writing a first draft I think it's challenging but it's not in that same way of being purely creative and inventive and tapping into the imaginative brain Um, you can be a bit more academic and that I find less challenging to do in the cracks of the day yeah you just have to be strict with yourself if you want to finish anything and we're going to hear from Graham Bartlett in just a moment's debut novelist. The story of how you became a, a published novelist with a, a publishing house, that's quite inspiring, actually. So can we just rewind a little bit and you tell us that story? Because if there are any writers, I know writers do listen to this show, who feel they're banging their head against a brick wall. This is a story that they need to hear. So I met my husband at 19. I graduated from Oxford. I said to him, I cannot do the normal things in life, like have kids and get a house, before I've really tried to get published. Because I just knew I wouldn't be fulfilled. I knew that I'd get sucked into just living that life and being very practical, and I needed to give it a shot. So we agreed that I'd have 10 years to do that in. And as I say, I didn't have any support there. You know, I had no mentor, I had nothing. And I was just plugging away. I decided to waitress because I worked in an office for nine months and wanted to kill myself. It was awful. And I had no brain. You know, I was doing office work. And at the end of the day, I just could not write. And the great thing about waitressing was it was mindless in the way that it was just physical. And all I had to think about was who was having sausages and who was having the chicken. And so then I could just write all the time. I would just write all the time, you know, on my napkins, in my little notebook that I would carry around. And I could just produce novels. Of course, no one wanted to publish these novels. So that was really depressing. And then three months before I turned 30, I had a massive panic attack because I thought this is my deadline and 10 years had gone by pretty quickly and I hadn't done it and thus I was going to have to give it up. So I took a bit of a sneaky route around which was to do self-publishing. I'd taken two weeks off work, written this very short novella, 30,000 words, and then mum said, and now you need to do what the protagonist in the novel does, which is self-publish her book. Because it was, you know, shamelessly autobiographical. Because <laughs> what I didn't have time to do any research or anything. So I'm just writing about myself, about a waitress who wants to become a novelist, essentially, and ends up self-publishing. But I sent it out to the only publisher who I thought would take it. And it was rejected. And I thought, OK, I'm going to have to self-publish. So I did. And it was terrifying because at the time I was so shy and I was so terrified of social interaction. And it wasn't like self-publishing is now. You know, you had to actually publish physical books. And then you had to go around bookshops and beg them. It was so humiliating. (laughs) You know, you'd be begging them to, could you put this on your shelf? And then I got really lucky. There was a girl who worked at Borders in Cambridge at the time. And she loved the book and she would shamelessly sell it to every one of her customers. I'd sold nearly a thousand copies at the end of a year, which was a lot in those days. And then I went back to the publisher and hilariously they decided that now this time they loved the book and they thought it was wonderful. Of course, it had nothing to do with the book because the book hadn't changed at all. They just loved the fact that I'd sold a thousand copies and they thought this demonstrated that it could be a hit. 
And you see this now everywhere, don't you? Because there's sort of fan fiction takes off online and then it's picked up by a publisher. Writers nowadays, you know, they can do really well with that. If you can't find a traditional publisher, all you need to do is prove that people want to read your books. And then we have this wonderful thing with Unbound now that you can crowdfund your own books. Taking a bit of power away from publishers is a really good thing because otherwise you feel very powerless as an author that you have to rely on agents and publishers. And I think I'm now coming into a new phase in my life where I want to actually reclaim some of that power and move away again from the traditional publishers. It's a very inspiring story because here you are with the mainstream publisher just because of that hard work you put in at the beginning. Yeah, I always like it when hard work is rewarded, but so much of the time it isn't. These professions, sort of writing, acting, painting, the outwardly success has no bearing on everything that you're putting into it. So much is luck. Well, let's hear from a writer at the beginning of his career. This is Graham Bartlett. He's the former chief superintendent of Brighton and Hove Police and has worked as an advisor to some of the world's best-selling crime authors. His first non-fiction book, Death Comes Knocking, Police in Roy Grace's Brighton, co-written with Peter James, came out in 2016 and became a Sunday Times bestseller. Bad for Good is his debut novel. Set in Brighton, it follows Detective Superintendent Jo Howe as she tracks down vigilantes and battles corruption in her own police force. Mark Billingham described it as a cracking debut. When I spoke to Graham, I started by asking him to tell me about his journey from police officer to author. Yeah, I wish I could set it out as some kind of um, huge plan, really, but it was by accident. So I knew a crime writer called Peter James, who did a lot of research around Brighton and Hove and Brighton and Hove Police. And he came up with a suggestion that we write a non-fiction together, talking about the true stories that inspired the Roy Grace novel. So we did that. We wrote Death Comes Knocking. I got the bug, really, from that. We wrote another non-fiction, and then I mooted with him that I'd go solo and, and write, write a novel. And he was fabulously supportive and gave me loads of guidance and advice. And here we are, you know, seven years on. <laughs> it's taken a while, but... Um, Bad for Good comes out. You know, I'm just absolutely delighted I've had the support of Peter, but also I've found this second calling, really. And uh, as the crime novel and your background, less research than maybe the average crime writer would need? Well, certainly the procedural side of it. And my protagonist is performing the role that I used to perform just before I retired. So she's the divisional commander of Brighton and Hove Police. But still a fair amount of research. You know, I, I know what it's like to be the chief of police in, a, in in Brighton and Hove, but I don't know what it's like to be a woman in that role and I don't know what it's like to get to that level and my demographics probably makes me, makes that journey easier and certainly talking to a lot of the senior women that I did, you know, I really do believe that now that there's a lot of barriers in the way for women to reach those levels. But other research as well, you know, I wanted to research the locations that I used very closely. I needed to know a lot about the private security industry because I wanted to kind of show them in a bad light. So the companies I spoke to, I made sure that I said to them, well, you know, I'll find out what you do and then get my lot to do the opposite. Quite a lot of research, a lot of kind of learning around the whole mechanics of creating a story and creating characters and structure and flow and pace and all those sorts of things. And you said this story burned inside you. It was something that kind of bore out of a, a conversation I had with the person that succeeded me in, my, in my, my role, where we were talking about how the police cuts were getting so severe that he simply didn't know how he was going to keep the city safe. And I, 
I just sort of thought, well, actually, what if that goes one stage further or even two stages further and vigilantes take over? And, and, and what happens then when there's kind of a direct competitor to policing as, as the method of crime control? And it, and it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And I, you know, I just had to write it. I, I didn't quite know how to write it at that point, but I had to write it. And given your experiences and your time as uh, working in the police, you've seen some dark things, I guess. How dark do you go when you're writing? Darker than I've seen. I've seen some dreadful things that people do to one another. And I've seen some some wonderful things, you know, people, members of the public and, you know, my own colleagues really sort of stepping up, putting themselves in harm's way to help others. But there's a thing with fiction that, you know, how bad can you make it for your protagonist? And I've ratcheted up quite somewhat, but hopefully it's all believable and credible. It's kind of almost like a view into the future of what might happen. And you mentioned Peter James there. You've worked with other writers, Ellie Griffiths, Mark Billingham, Anthony Horowitz. What did you learn from them? I mean, in terms of crafting, because you say you've got the experience, but shaping it into a story... What did you learn either overtly from them or almost subliminally, if you like? All of them are hugely successful in, in their own right. I suppose the one thing that I, I've learned from all of them is not to be too hard on yourself in the first draft. The first draft, some people just call it the author's draft or the vomit draft, you know, just getting the story down on, on paper. And I, you know, this is why Bad for Good took me so long to write, because I was kept going back trying to make every scene, every chapter perfect and they all said you know well we, we don't do that we just get the story down and, and then we go back and we edit and we polish and we edit and we polish a bit like creating a piece of sculpture really you know and in the end they end up with something that we see on the bookshelves but they're you know all tremendously generous with their with their advice and their guidance and and their encouragement as well it's a very lonely job being a writer so having people like that on the end of a phone that you can just scream at from time to time is, is hugely useful and how did you find the plotting because obviously plot is key in a crime novel how did you keep your head around where people were and red herrings and who was guilty all of that I've got to be honest that um you know bad for good was a bit of a mess when I started it and and I was just I just thought think oh this would be a quite a good scene to write and then didn't really work out how that was going to get back into the story and then I took a, a it was actually a screenwriting course and started to understand structure and flow and pace and beats and all that sort of thing a little bit deeper so I went back and kind of edited it around there and it and stripped out a huge amount because I learned very quickly that some of it was vanity and I just wanted to write stuff because I thought it'd be a good scene to write and it actually didn't drive the story on so I've got this I've got this real discipline now and, and subsequent you know I mean I've written the second book and I'm halfway through the third you know I've got a real discipline now about you know does this sentence does this scene does this chapter take the story forward take the characters forward and if it doesn't you know it's the cutting room floor so you say you've written the second and the third are the same characters in there is this a series definitely a series i mean the second one comes out early 2023 and i'm hoping to get signed for the um the third and maybe even a fourth as well but yeah definitely definitely a series you know i think joe howe's got a lot to to offer us still and we've got a lot to throw at her yeah, I'm really enjoying it. And I'm really enjoying developing the characters and taking them on a on that longer journey than you can do in the in just one book. And why a woman? Why did you make it uh, Joe Howells in, uh, female rather than Joe male? To be honest, I, I thought there were there were too many senior male officers. I wanted to give my protagonist a, a you know slightly different side. You know, some some different challenges. Obviously, presented some challenges for myself. And also, I, d I didn't want to fall into a trap of making it appear or be autobiographical. You know, even just by changing gender, I started to think differently about her. If I'd have kept 
her as a man and originally she was a man in, in the, and I changed her in the very very early days I, I might have just allowed some of my own experiences my own values to leak into her and I didn't want that so I, I thought I'd take it in a different route people must think I'm crazy to have done that on a debut novel but I found it the best way to create a truly fictional but rounded and deep character you talk about your experiences there what about your colleagues your former colleagues they're a bit nervous reading your books they're all kind of looking out to see if they appear in them in any way there's some names that might appear familiar to some people not the same names but you know just some sort of in jokes there that that, that have gone in, in in some of the names all the characters are fictional all the stories are fictional but I'm guessing that people are going to go oh I bet Bob Heaton's got bits of me in it or I you know I bet um Phil Cook is you know a bit of this person and uh of course, I'll just keep saying it's a work of fiction and uh, let the, keep them guessing. And Bad for Good by Graham Bartlett is published by Alison and Busby. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Mena Van Prague about her novel Night of Demons and Saints, published by Bantam Press. Mena, what's next for you then, apart from getting some sleep? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's number one priority, definitely. Emily and I have set up our own... This is Emily Winslow. Emily Winslow and I have set up our own business because the work that we were doing for the Institute of Continuing Education for Cambridge University, they've decided to keep everything online and we really miss face-to-face. And we're firm believers also that some of the inspiration that you get is from place as well as what people are teaching you. And Cambridge is such a beautiful, inspiring place. And I think being in these locations is very, very important. So we've set up a company, we've just set it up called the Cambridge Creative Writing Company. And we're going to give face-to-face workshops. And we're going to keep them very small because we also believe that trying to teach lots of students all at once is very challenging for us. And it's also not great for the students because you just don't get the quality time. Lovely. Where can people find out about this? CambridgeCreativeWritingCompany.com. We're having our first workshop on the 17th of September. Good luck with that. And uh, a question we ask all our featured guests on Bookmark. What are you reading at the moment? One of the things I discovered in lockdown was an extra love for reading short stories. And right now I'm reading a book called Whoever You Choose to Love by Colette Paul, who was a colleague of mine at Anglia Ruskin. And it's brilliant. Lovely. Well, normally at this point, uh, I would tell you what's coming up in the next episode of Bookmark, but this is the last in the present series. We're going to spend the summer catching up on our reading. We're back in September. The first show in that new series is scheduled to be broadcast on the 11th of September. So we'll sign out, men and I, with your last choice of music, which is Eva Cassidy and Over the Rainbow. Why this one? This song, it makes me happy and sad all at once. I can't explain why. It's a mood that I often find myself in. This song evokes that for me. Cambridge 105 Radio.